starting my hand warmers. Beth should be here any minute. The puddles are frozen. The sky is amazing. The deck is not too icy. Hey! We have a gorgeous morning. Oh, oh my gosh! I I thought yeah. I looked out the sky and it was just dull clouds, yeah, and then we turned the we went over the hill day. and it was it's stunning. Yeah. 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 Oh, look at that sky! It's a pink, orange, gray, <laughs> purple, lavender. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we get the total orange. Sometimes we get all the yellow. Yeah. Mountains with snow yeah. on them, yeah. don't yeah. they? Yeah, it's the front range, Beth. It is, Welcome I to know. <laughs> the sea can, the sea can give you anything you like, Beth. Exactly. Okay, I'm gonna swim over that way and go skiing. Okay, Beth. <laughs> Maggie, that last voice there, someone named Beth. Who is that? Beth is originally from Colorado, uh, and she's a transplanted New Englander who we swim with every morning. She's one of my fellow, uh, uh, we call ourselves the sea bears, and some people call themselves the myrmazons, but anyhow, we're a conglomeration of people who come together to swim in the ocean four seasons a year. In the ocean. So four seasons a year. Now, you sent us this just yesterday um, after your morning swim in the Atlantic. I think yesterday it was... Uh, what, air temperature of like 20 and water temperature of 43-ish? Yes, with only a slight breeze, so we were really lucky. And a little sliver of sun, so again, we were really lucky. <laughs> okay, well, let's listen to a little bit more. Um, after you go on this frigid swim, um, Maggie coming out of the water. <laughs> I'm semi, semi-solid. It is not warm. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. My hands. Yeah, it feels like it. That was not a complete success, those blows. They sweat in too much water. Oh man. But we got a beautiful day. Beautiful and half frozen, like a, a human-sized ice cube. Well, this is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Maggie Jackson is our guest today. And regardless of temperature or unpredictable currents, ocean swimming is something Maggie does every day, right? Seven days a week? Just about. Seven days a week. Obviously, there are health benefits to it. But in order to plunge herself out of a state of comfort and into uncertainty, that is another benefit she experiences from ocean swimming four seasons a year. And purposefully embracing a state of uncertainty, it's the subject of Maggie's new book. It's called Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. Maggie, welcome to On Point. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay. When I first read that you swim in the North Atlantic, essentially, uh, in the middle of winter, I was like, why? Why do you do it? Well, it really started, I've always been an ocean swimmer, but more of a pool swimmer for exercise, ocean for fun. And when the pandemic came, the pools closed, so we actually moved out of the city and to Rhode Island. And so I became, um, you know, 
eager to do this form of exercise, which which was really my my thing, um, longer and longer into the season, and then bought the wetsuit, and then bought the gloves, and et cetera, et cetera. So, I. I found it joyful. We find it exhilarating. It is great, you know, exercise in itself. But then I began to also realize that we were constantly on the edge. And that was part of the the wonder and the discomfort and the excitement of it all. So for those people who haven't been ocean swimming, what brings you, what are the factors that make you feel like you're on the edge? Well, sure. You can be in your warm, cozy house and be looking at the app that tells you the wavelength due to the, you know, probabilistic modeling, et cetera. You can know the beach. You can know the conditions there. And you get there, and it can be completely different or at least a little bit different. You really never know exactly what you're going to get. And then when you enter the water, of course, it's all changing. We actually swim a little bit before the sun comes up often. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. The sun rising has an instant, uh, you know, near instant effect on the ocean itself, which is absolutely fascinating. I've grown to learn. And so you are looking for spots which are dicey, churning spots, etc. Ah, so so what you're saying is the data that you can gather beforehand will never perfectly match the conditions that you're swimming in. Exactly. Okay. And so that and that lends you a, a sense of exhilaration because a lot of people would say, well, because I can't know for sure, I don't want to do it. Exactly. But you're on the edge of what you know. You have a grounding. You, you do know the conditions. You have a little bit of the data. But you're at the edge where basically, uh, you know, not anything could happen, a 40-foot tsunami, et cetera, but you're living in the moment in an improvisational way and learning as you go, even in those 20, 30 minutes of the swim, uh, you're completely, uh, you know, not knowing quite what will happen, even though you, you know, have an expectation. Okay. But so tell me about what you're feeling in that moment or how it changes your perspective of being in that moment, and if that's also had an impact on, you know, how you see other things that you're not quite so sure of. Exactly. Well, I really puzzled over why exactly I loved it so much because I actually don't like the cold and I don't love, uh, you know, high waves, etc. But I found that I realized that this not knowing, this sort of daily dose of uncertainty was strengthening me in ways. I mean, hence the laughter, hence the joy, hence the banter. We really feel, I remember a fellow during the pandemic kind of stopped uh, to talk to us as we were in our wetsuits. He was not, but he said, doesn't it make you feel so alive? He knew exactly what we were doing. And that's what it is. You're, you're constantly kind of on the edge and uh, it makes me feel as though I can, I'm capable of, t- of dealing with what life throws at me the rest of the day. Uh, I feel as though um, the not knowing what the ocean holds, it's changed my perspective on swimming, on the ocean, on uh, exploring or, or th- throwing myself into something new. Uh, it, it's just made unpredictability mm. a little bit more the norm mm. and in a wonderful way because that is what life is. And I'm learning in every moment. I feel as though I'm totally, utterly alive when I'm doing it. Wow. Well, um, I'll just put out there that for people who aren't ocean swimmers 
and think about wanting to do it. First of all, do it with people who know how to do it because Mother Nature is all powerful. Um, so maybe you don't want to just you know plunge in without uh, a group of knowledgeable, experienced folks around you. Because I was remembering uh, many, many years ago, I spent a summer in La Jolla, California. It's n- right next door to San Diego. So it was a summer there and I was on the beach every day. And one day I went out to swim. There was a buoy about maybe a fifth of a mile out. Um, So I was like making my way out there. The water depth wasn't that great. It was like maybe six to seven feet at that point. But this wave came out of nowhere and just pounded me down and my head hit the sand at the um, at the bottom of uh, that stretch of ocean. And I popped back up and I was like, it was a reminder that um, Mother Nature always wins. Right, right, <laughs> so, right. And so, isn't that what life is? Yeah. We are actually not as in control as we might think we are every day. Yeah, but this is why your book is so um, so provocative because the recognition of the limits to our of our control, and then pushing ourselves into the state of uncertainty that comes with that recognition. You write in the book that it's a source of strength, right? So first of all, I, I suppose we should. Uh, strictly define what you mean by uncertainty in this in your book. Yes, I think it's important to add that people, uh, you know, experts, have, there's a lot of debate about different types of uncertainty. You can find different definitions in economics, etc. But mainly, we can talk about two main types of uncertainty. One is aleatory so-called uncertainty, and that's the unknown. That's sort of a shorthand for the unknown, what we cannot know. You know, you you really, despite the app, do not know, you know, whether the waves will rise or fall in the next half hour, etc. And But then there is our uncertainty or uh, epistemic uncertainty, psychological uncertainty, you might, might, might call it. And that's the human response to the unknown. And some people define it as uh, recognizing the limits of what you know. It's a moment. It's not full-blown ignorance. It's not, you know, the blank slate I might have for particle physics. It's basically being unsure It could, and, and also recognizing that something could be this way or could be that way. Uh, so it's uh, being on that edge, as I mentioned. Mm. So, so to be clear, the aleatory uncertainty you're talking about was simply the fact that there are limits to our knowledge. It, well, the aleatory uh, uncertainty is really uh, what we cannot know. We just simply can't know. Right. It's the unknowns that we face every single day, whereas uh, epistemic uncertainty is the recognition that we reach the limits of our knowledge. And so at that moment, we don't know, but we're unsure. We're uncertain. And this can, and so that epi- the epistemic side is what you're focusing on, exactly. And and it can it can involve uh, anything from just maybe small situations in life to the great unknowns in our life, right? Absolutely. I mean, it can be uh, a mo- uh, epistemic uncertainty can be if you cast a wide net, a moment's daydream uh, when you're casting yourself from the here and now and launching into the what if scenarios of the uh, you know what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, and uh, uncertainty can be uh, the deliberative space that a surgeon in a high stakes crisis uh, will um, inhabit so that then they can problem solve with a situation that they haven't sensed seen before. Uh, so uncertainty can. Come. Well, I think it's really important, an important point that uncertainty 
can take on a lot of different modes and types. Uh, that's something we need to talk about more in our society today. Okay, so what we'll do when we come back is we'll talk about some of those types. And then I want to dig deeper also into why um, welcoming that uncertainty can can be a, a, a boon or can strengthen us. So that's what we'll do when we get back from the break. Maggie Jackson is our guest today, and she's author of Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here, so make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Maggie Jackson joins us today. She's author of the new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. And Maggie, we uh, told On Point listeners a couple of days ago that we were going to be talking to you today about uncertainty, and they sent us so many stories about moments of uncertainty in their lives and how it had an impact on them. So I just want to listen to a couple of them. We'll, we'll hear from more folks later in the show. But first of all, this is Heidi from Johnston, Iowa. And I'm sure just about every person in the United States who've, who has ever went through a divorce faced a lot of uncertainty. You know, can I run a household by myself? Can I pay for my whole life by myself? Can I take care of my kids and pay for them by myself? And I would say that uh, over the 10 years, I have finally figured out, yes, I can do this all by myself. And so uncertainty... Uh, help me find myself and uh, grow. That is so inspiring, Heidi. I say more power to you. Here's another one. This is A1 who called us from Brookline, Massachusetts. And he says his life has been full of uncertainty. He's an immigrant from Taiwan. He started two different businesses in the United States. He's face, faced or facing financial hardship. And yet, A1 says uncertainty has actually been his guide. Uncertainty pushes us to try something new. You have the freedom to try something that you cannot do in your stable life. That is the best part of the uncertainty. You don't need an excuse to force yourself to do something different. It's already different. <laughs> For me, uncertainty gave me a chance to recalibrate my life goals. It makes me a rolling stone that prevents me from gathering mosses. That's A1 from Brookline, Massachusetts. And Maggie, you just your jaw just kind of dropped there. I just love the 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 life wisdom there and the fact that 
Heidi and A1 um, through very difficult circumstances, I imagine, uh, found that uncertainty strengthened them. And I do hear from many people. I mean, we have a very, very negative view of uncertainty often, and studies bear that out, especially of leaders, you know, or political leaders or business leaders. We think of uncertainty as weakness and synonymous with paralysis, particularly. Even when I was beginning to shift the book I was writing on thinking toward uncertainty, because the uncertainty story wanted to be told, I felt reluctant myself because I felt as though it was sort of this abyss or, you know, sort of a monolithic darkness. And yet I found that uh, not only does it have this spurring, uh, provocative, provoking, I call it the gadfly of the mind kind of, uh, you know, effect on us if we let it, if we inhabit, if we harness it, uh, but also it's, uh, you know, has, you know, there's very much more to the story than just one black fog of uncertainty. (laughs) Well, so I'd like to learn from you more about what's actually happening in the brain, right, when we're experiencing these uh, states of uncertainty, because, I mean, one would think that... uh, human beings would be wired to try to reduce uncertainty, right? Because maybe the common assumption would be that the more certain we can be of things, the more able we are to survive, let's just say. So, but that may not necessarily be true. So what's happening neurologically with uncertainty? Right. And that your question drives straight to the heart of why we dislike uncertainty and yet why it is so beneficial for humanity, so essential for humanity. Uh, So, you know, we humans and many organisms are built to need and want answers. You know, that's why, you know, we, that's how we survive, as you point out. Uh, But when we meet something new and unexpected and murky, we have a kind of uh, stress response related to uncertainty. We, we realize, we recognize we're the limits of our knowledge. We recognize suddenly that we don't know, you know, is that a tiger in the tree or just a shadow, et cetera, et cetera. And so at that point, um, you know, you might, it, it, you might have a bodily physiological stress response. Your heart might beat or your palms might sweat. But at the same time, in the brain, there are cascading changes due to the release of stress hormones and neurotransmitters, et cetera. Uh, so your brain becomes more active in sharing information between regions. Uh, your uh, working memory is bolstered. Your focus is heightened. You know, they call it, some scientists call it focused arousal. So at that moment, you're on your toes. You're gaining a kind of wakefulness. And one neuroscientist, Joseph Cable, told me the brain at that moment is telling itself there's something to be learned here. Mm. So you can see I actually wrote... At one in one draft of the book, that this is an epic chance to move from routine and automaticity. I got some pushback from my agent, epic. <laughs> and I said, no, this really is an epic human chance to, to move forward into what we can know further about the world. But so the, the sort of cascading neural response you're talking about sounds somewhat like flight or fight. Is it, but is it different from what's happening in those situations? It's it's related, but I'll say a minute that in a minute. Uh, this is not a fear-based response. Okay. This is not, uh, you know, it's very much an unconscious 
um, you know, uh, very basic response, a stress response. But it actually is called by some scientists good stress. Uh, so it is uh, a way in which your system is revving up for performance. Your blood is circulating toward areas of the brain. In fact, the brain is funneling energy to itself at that moment. That is what happens when we have, uh, you know, when we're going into approach mode. If you are fearful at that moment, you have a very different systemic effect. Uh, when you're fearful of either the uncertainty or perhaps what it is you're about to do, when you expect that this is going to be a disaster, then uh, you have uh, the blood uh, circulatory system um, begins to funnel blood away from your extremities, including your brain, mm. actually. So you're actually um, moving more into a kind of uh, shutdown mode, a fear-based shutdown mode instead of a performance mode. Okay. So I want to um, just hear from another listener really quickly, um, because it's starting to make sense then why we got the kinds of responses uh, that we got. So for example, here's Kirk. He's uh, from Eastern Oregon. For me, uncertainty is a chance to work on patience. For me, uncertainty is a chance to believe, slow down and show up to um, my soul and, and trust that uh, the process will work and not probably over-function. Now, isn't that interesting, Maggie, because, you know, we're talking about actually a high period of activity in the brain, right, when, when facing uncertainty. I mean, you described it very well. But in terms of how people experience it consciously, I mean, Kirk says it's a, almost a chance to pause exactly. while, while processing that uncertainty. Exactly. And that is uh, part two, if you will, of the uncertainty story, because uncertainty is this spur. Uh, it is an invitation to learn. Uh, it's being poised on the edge of what you do not yet know. And, then, and yet at the same time, it's also a space. Uh, it is, is some a, a space is slowing down, a pausing. You are uh, uh, having a sort of disconnection from instant immediate action and from instant automatic thoughts. You are actually, ha the, the brain and the body are telling itself that this is a time to put away that routine, to break, to break, to reassess, to pivot. And yet, then you can enter the space that uncertainty is. I mean, I think we need to develop a, a whole new vocabulary yeah. about uncertainty, <laughs> but it is both a noun and it's also, I call it wisdom in motion. Uh, and one neuroscientist told me it's the chance for thing for life to take a turn in a different direction, just as Kirk was saying. Uh, so once we can enter uncertainty, then we can begin to uh, understand, investigate the different diagnostic operate, uh, options in the medical situation, or what are the pros and cons to taking that new job. You have to re be remaining in uncertainty in order to investigate, deliberate, daydream, etc. Yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm hearing you describe a state of like positive contemplation almost, um, which we'll talk a little bit later about how to welcome that state <laughs> more frequently in our lives. But since you mentioned medicine, you have a, you, the book abounds with examples of um, fear of uncertainty and then trying to change that fear into something else. Can you tell us the story of um, of Maine Medical? that you talk about in your book and how young doctors uh, you know, fresh out of med school sometimes do feel a high degree of uncertainty. 
Yes, exactly. Um, it's very common for people, uh, and especially in professions, to um, rest on what uh, they know. Uh, you know, we we sort of hone these over thousands of hours, et cetera, life experience and practice, we hone these the ability to come up with solutions um, to in situations that we've already seen before. Um, at the same time, uh, the novice is sort of looking for those uh, you know, uh, heuristic uh, model solutions for it for life to be a textbook. Uh, at Maine Medical Center, the uh, head faculty of the residency program in family medicine began to see that many of the young doctors were highly uncomfortable with uncertainty, and yet family medicine is the most <laughs> suffused with uncertainty. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, medicine overall, but especially family medicine, it's it's like a whole sea of things that you can't exactly predict, but you have to do the best you can with the knowledge that you have. Right. In, in a sense, that actually did surprise me. I'm like, uh, are we not training young doctors in med school that a, a fact of life is the human body is complex and you may not know the answers to everything? But anyway, c- continue with telling us about what Well, like many professions, I think certainty seeking uh, is uh, very much the predominant theme. Yeah. Uh, and uncertainty is something as in for, re- for the rest of us, something to, you know, basically uh, to quash and move on to. I will say um, that as patients, sorry to jump in, but we probably put um, inordinate, inordinate pressure on doctors by always asking them for the answer or what is the right treatment. Right. So that, some of that pressure is coming from the outside, but go ahead. It's a two-way street. Yeah. Uh, well, they began to see uh, rising discomfort with uncertainty among these young doctors and decided to do a kind of pilot study and try to, on many different levels, uh, help the doctors become more tolerant of uncertainty. Uh, So they added more time for reflection. They added more mentoring. But they also, particularly, um, they, Bethany Picker and others at Maine Medical Center, uh, particularly explicitly told the young doctors that it was okay not to know, uh, that you know they didn't have to come up with the answer immediately. And they tried to make things even more messy for them to actually give, give them skill in being in the unknown and show them when they came out the other side, uh, relinquishing their fear and dis- discomfort of uncertainty, they could see this as an opportunity. So one young uh, doctor told me, Dr. Nupur Negrare told me that, you know, when life isn't certain, you begin to have less tunnel vision. And it's she and others told me that affected their entire lives. Uh, and in fact, um, Dr. Picker told me that um, this gave them courage, courage, courage and uncertainty are not two words that we usually put together. But uh, becoming more tolerant of uncertainty gave them the courage because they were able to, as Kirk pointed out, have this sort of patient space, even in a in a few minutes, I mean, we're not talking about hours, to just uh, understand different ways of uh, seeing the situation. One of the, uh, one of the truisms of uncertainty is that it is, it is a space for possibilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now, did, oh, I was going to say, yeah. in the, at the end, the pilot study showed that, for instance, they became, the young doctors became more tolerant of ambiguity. Uh, at, at the beginning, they had rated an expert as someone who always knew the right answer. By the end, they said that wasn't so true. Oh, very interesting. So that's then the real sort of um, transformation of mindset here that uh, getting more comfortable with uncertainty can bring. Okay, 
I want to actually just step back for a second here because that was a really compelling example. But it suddenly occurs to me when you defined uncertainty at the beginning, um, we're, we are talking about a kind of uncertainty that doesn't actually threaten survival, right? Because I'm wondering, you know, well, for families, let's say, who have no idea if they'll be able to make rent next month and may be evicted or a child who um, you know, is constantly watching their, their family try to struggle over saving money for food, if they'll be able to eat. I mean, those are survival and existence-based kinds of uncertainty, which – Maybe they teach you resilience in hard times, but I'm not sure it has any positive overall long-term impact uh, when survival is at stake. Well, actually, I think it's complicated. Um, First of all, we never want anyone to be in those sorts of situations. You know, the bottom line is that we don't, whether through socioeconomic class or, you know, mental challenges or et cetera, for people to be in such grave precarity uh, that life is just one big unpredictability. Uh, But at the same time, it is far more complicated. And I think uh, in a nutshell, uh, we need to be talking about different types of uncertainty as positive for human flourishing. so I did some research into this question of how people thrive uh, and survive in situations of high precarity. Uh, you focus and, on kids, right? You learned a lot about kids in precarity. Exactly. And there's a lot of focus now uh, in the field of um, developmental psychology and um in poverty, on on unpredictability as a sort of a, a trans uh, underlying root of some of the ways in which children's minds are shaped right. cognitively. Uh, so in looking at unpredictability, uh, you find that there are often um, some, you know, downsides, but also some ways in which people raised not just in lower economic circumstances, but also they might be adopted or they might have had alcoholism in their household. Um, people actually are able to emerge with uh, incredible survival skills. Um, so we might call them street smarts. They linking, linking back to that kind of aroused wakefulness that we talked about at the beginning. This is a hyper state where uh, threats have to be seen immediately. And in fact, one Chicago study found that young teen black boys who were more hyper aroused in this way as a result of their precarious circumstances were saw were witnessed less violence over the course of the year. So they that was protective for them to be in this kind of state. I see. So they could they they it was protective and and maybe help them respond appropriately in in other uh, in situations. Absolutely. It was yeah. A- but we sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you. But we do have to uh, make it to a break here, Maggie. But I just want to underscore something that you said that. Um, that while that might be um, sort of a resilience silver lining, poverty is pretty well documented as living in a state of um, a constant, a constant stress state, right? And and a negative form of uncertainty, which does have a lot of major downsides to cognitive development, as you said. So I didn't want to like just brush over that uh, too quickly because that's a major part of people who are struggling to make ends meet about, of their lives. But when we come back. Maggie, what I want to talk about is you you have examples of how in the workplace injecting more uncertainty can actually be beneficial to uh, to people as a whole. And then you mentioned leadership in politics. I really want to hear what you have to say about uncertainty in that, uh, given the world we're living in right now. So that's what we're going to talk about with Maggie Jackson in just a moment. This is On Point. 
Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Maggie Jackson is with us today. She's author of Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. And uh, Maggie, in between the segments there, you said you wanted to add a little bit more to the, the question of the differences between precarity, as you call it in the book, and uncertainty, because I was pushing back a little bit about how I find preca- precarity is an overall negative stress experience for people. Sure. And people can develop... Um, important uh, skills, survival skills from existing in precarity, a situation we wouldn't want you know, anyone to face. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, we also need uh, to understand that it, a, a different kind of uncertainty that skill is re- related to kind of reflective ability to li- deliberation, you know, stepping back. So the scientist Philip David Zalazo is is developed a program now that's running in many Head Start uh, centers across the country that's been highly highly um, in, uh, successful related to teaching families. Uh, helping families learn routines in which they can also learn sort of moments, instill moments of reflection in a highly precarious day. So while people might be so-called on point and, uh, you know, living in this survival mode, which is very positive in some ways, even though the circumstance is not, but they also can, you know, all of us need to learn skills related to stepping back, pausing, reflecting, and deliberating, which is uh, utilizing the suspense of uncertainty for good. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are different arrows in our, in there should be and can be different arrows in our quiver related to uncertainty. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned that being as a state of being on point, <laughs> I'm going to say to my to the whole staff here, see, our constant state of uncertainty about whether or not we'll be able to pull off the show is a good thing. Okay, <laughs> let's move on to hear from uh, a, a listener again. This is Brenna from Los Angeles, and she told us about a recent experience uh, when she and her husband quit their jobs sold everything, and took their children to travel around the world for a year. And the whole entire year was geared to shaking ourselves out of a rut, um, shaking up the way that we responded to life, and making sure that we treasured the moments and the days that we had, which a lot of the reason that we were able to do that was because of the constant uncertainty of our situation. I took away from that year, you know, a really a different sort of response and respect for that word and for 
the feeling that you get when you're in uncertainty because inevitably it can mean growth. That's Brenna from Los Angeles. Now, Maggie, um, through our listener stories, we've been talking a lot about um, uncertainty and the individual. But you also write in the book that welcoming uncertainty has a major benefit for for groups, right? And and I mean, let's talk about in the workplace. I, I'm a space nerd, so when you wrote about the NASA engineers um, and the Mars rover, I was like, oh wow! So, so, so tell tell us about why uncertainty works in the workplace with that example. Right. No, exactly. Um, uncertainty is not necessarily a solo act. We can be uncertain together, and it's actually a very good thing. I mean, there's a lot of pressure today to agree with one another. I mean, we you know historically know about groupthink, but at the same time, you know, we are family, and let's get all on the same page, and let's hire for fit, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of pressures to be in accord, uh, which is a very particular state of mind uh, related to more sort of lower-key neural activity uh, versus being in disagreement, which is you know, highly related to a much more active, energized state of mind. And so uh, the, 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 at the beginning of the Mars Explorer rover mission, the mission that put the little rover, you know, robots on the moon and discovered that the water had flowed there, et cetera. Mars. Just... Um, sorry. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, another story about moon in the book. Uh, Mars. Uh, yes, there was a, uh, you know, a, a tremendous amount of interest in this team because it was so diverse on so many different levels and so high level, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, some scientists uh, spent uh, 400 hours videotaping their conversations. And what they found was that uh, the uh, conversations in scientists, uh, 20% of the conversations in the early days of the rover mission involved conflict. Now, mild, respectful, frequent, delicious, you know, delicious, de- uh, you know, kind of judicious conflict. And most of those involved expressions of uncertainty. Mm. Uh, and what that does is basically, uh, you know, sort of jolt person off the routine, off automaticity, off the group, off the sort of island, uh, the comfortable, I call it the love seat of accord, where everybody's talking about what they already know and discussions are shallow and inaccuracies are not uh, unearthed, et cetera, et cetera, into the realm of being in disagreement where people are a little more on their toes uh, and discussions intensifies. Now, why, how does uncertainty play a role? This is really important. We often think of argument dissent, et cetera, as a situation when someone or people ride in with the right answer, you know, the right side and the argument will win and et cetera. But that's not actually how the performance gains are accrued when there is good conflict. Mm -hmm. What happens is that, uh, again, people are a little bit shaken out of their norm. And so they become more questioning and skeptical. So dissenting voice in a group uh, actually, even if wrong, uh, spurs a group to far better performance, you know, better creativity, uh, more uh, intensified uh, examination of the complexity of a situation. I mean, it, this is true in the Supreme Court, on juries, on climbers on Mount, Mount Everest and in the space program. And so what are you doing there? You're Well, you're putting people on your toes, but you're also basically unearthing what you don't know. You can't f- move further if you don't know what you don't know. That's true in all learning and especially in collaboration. And it's, it was a really exciting time. And these 
the space, the Mars rover, the MER mission, actually uh, made sure that despite their bonding and their camaraderie, they made sure to constantly remind themselves through various um, practices and rituals to, um, you know, to you know, raise their hand and say, I don't know or I disagree. I think that is a critical point, right? Because especially in the workplace, that kind of uh, creating space for uh, collaborative conflict, let's, let's call it that, um, it has to actually be um, intentionally done, right? A culture in the workplace has to be created in order to welcome that. You can't just rely on, on people um, working with each other uh, organically that way. Right, exactly. I mean, we are such social beings. Humans want to be in agreement, um, you know, whether we're working for the same team or the, for the same company. I mean, study after study shows that we fall into homophily, so to speak. Uh, and at, in this situation of agreement, even if you have diverse people at the table, even if you have diverse ideas at the table, uh, the group is very highly uh you know, tends to not even see the differences that are there. So you're right, it takes work. And one thing the Mars people did was the listening ritual. Every single meeting, every single coming together ended with a call for people to disagree or to say they don't know at the end. And they were really, really adamant about that, that, you know, however, wherever you were on the pecking order of the food chain of the hierarchy, it was your job to actually do that. And in many organizations, those people are seen as being a pain mm. because they make you uncomfortable. And groups that are actually, uh, you know, in disagreement uh, with uncertainty in that incredible dynamic of uncertain disagreement are actually less comfortable and they rate themselves as less effective when they're being far more effective. So this also gets back to the mindset that we have to change our closed minds about uncertainty. We have to open up and then we'll begin to see these these uh, benefits of uncertainty. Mm. So let's move over to the world of politics because um, here's a place where the truth of uncertainty comes into complete conflict with promises of certainty. That's that's kind of how I see how modern politics going. And and Larry in Gold Hill, Oregon, um, added to those thoughts. He says that there's a dark and destructive side to uncertainty uh, in American politics. Something's something that politicians and world leaders, Larry says, use to their advantage. Some of the post-Soviet governments they maintain a level of uncertainty. Just as daily business, you know, there may have been uh, red lines in the good old communist days, but that's nothing compared with the uncertainty that comes with not having the state control most of your life. And, and to be honest, I, I would suspect all politicians use s uncertainty as a tool. Some use it in a positive kind of aspirational context, but there's others out there that we see every day using uncertainty as something that's much, much more destructive. But I would say that I agree and disagree because basically what is being used here is our fear of uncertainty, not uncertainty itself. Again, I have to reiterate, we don't want to live in the extreme, on the far, far side of the spectrum, or we really don't know what's coming at us. We can't as humans thrive. Uh, we ha uh, There's a human right to have some kind of security and predictability, of course. But I think that uh, we would not be so 
um, uh, you know, unnerved by uncertainty if our human response was more open to it as, as you know, as a truth of life. Uh, you know, I think that basically uh, the, the mutability, when we can kind of respond to and open up to and inhabit and harness uncertainty, we can become more honest. I think mm. of uncertainty as a form of honesty. So, yes, you can do uncertainty one another. You know, you can spread just just as there's, you know, uh, you know, you can also use certainty as a weapon. You know, uh, smoking isn't bad for you. We're going to send that message. I mean, uh, any of these sort of states of mind can be used in weapons as, as one another. But I do think that a lot of our problem with uncertainty now is fear of, not the condition itself. Right. Okay. So in the last few minutes that we have, Maggie, I want to talk about how to um, construct spaces in which we can learn to love uncertainty. And I wanted to close the show this way because it, it there was a chapter that you wrote about harnessing the power to, to daydream in the book. Uh, and it reminded me of what Kirk had said earlier, that when he's like dwelling in uncertainty, he actually feels like it's a moment to process things differently and not necessarily hope for a known outcome. And he, he called it almost spiritual. And I, and I bring Kirk back into our conversation because and I'm thinking not just politics or work, but we're also living in a technological environment, which I would say, I would argue, is geared towards trying to reduce uncertainty down to zero, right? Like they always, uh, tech is always talking about building uh, predictable, uh, predict predictability algorithms. They want to send you suggestions that they think you'll already like, so you don't even have to search for anything new. Social media feeds, all of that stuff, um, where the goal is to put you in a bubble of your your knowns. And thinking of kids, I mean, this is like the most tender time for brain development for them. Are we making it harder for kids with technology and adults even to learn to love uncertainty and benefit uh, from all the gifts that it can give us? Well, yes, I think so. I mean, the evidence points that way. And in fact, uh, a very leading researcher on uncertainty and anxiety uh, has studies, early studies, showing that uh, an intolerance of uncertainty, that is seeing uncertainty as a threat rather than a challenge, uh, is actually has actually been rising with the penetration of the internet and smartphones. Uh, so there's and, and and people call psychologists call the tech devices certainty seeking devices. I mean, you put it so well. And also, I would add that the just the aesthetics of it. It's boxes. It's bullets. It's this or it's that way. It's multiple choice, etc. I mean, humans don't exist in that. In, we we we're kind of losing sight of how we exist. We are gray areas. Area species. We're not bullet points. We're not PowerPoints. So, so I think it's really important. And, and just a short time online has been shown to give people a kind of hubris. They come away thinking they know more than they do. And what's important about that is it's really important to know that you don't know in order to push the envelope of your knowledge yeah. in order to exist on the edge. So I think that, yeah, technology has a great role to play as long as a sort of, as well as a, a long march of what Dewey called the quest for certainty, the rational idea that, uh, that, that defines intelligence very narrowly as, you know, achieving one's goals point blank, uh, which drives AI traditionally. So I think that, yeah, technology is a very important vessel of of buffering us against the uncertainty that truly 
truly exists. So I know people are wondering how, what can they do consciously to uh, embrace these positive aspects of uncertainty or build up their tolerance for uncertainty? I don't know how you want to put it, but we've just got oof, about a minute and a half left. I'd love a, some advice or pointers from you. Yes, exactly. Well, um, a lot of research now is pointing toward bolstering your tolerance for uncertainty. So in very small ways. Uh, one suggestion, which I initially scoffed at, but I think is wonderful, is just try something new, a new dish in a restaurant. If you are able to just, uh, you know, put your toe into the waters, so to speak, to go back to the swimming metaphor, of a new experience, you're actually allowing yourself, A, to realize that uncertainty isn't disaster, that you can move forward amidst the unknowns, and then also it's, it is a, an area of delight. Uh, so, you know, trying something new, putting down your phone, which is a package of, of certainty, uh, and um, allowing ourselves, it's a very exciting time in brain science vis-a-vis uh, -vis uncertainty, because we now know how important for uh, human growth is the daydream. We now know that, you know, consciousness works in multiple different ways and is in, in a, a, a kind of wakefulness that we've been discussing. You know, we are beginning to understand that, uh, you know, that basically uh, uncertainty unfolds in so many different areas of our life. So I would say allow kids to daydream. Think of it as a sketchbook of the mind. Uh, disagree with one another. Don't stay in that happy place. Mm. Well, you know, it reminds me of what uh, our listener A1 said about uh, uncertainty keeps the moss from growing on a rolling stone. So true. So true. <laughs> well, Maggie Jackson's new book is called Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. And we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Maggie, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Shame. Thank you so much. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. On Point.